For years, it, it mystified me. For years, I just could not figure out how it happens. How is it that two siblings who once wanted to share the same room, right? Or a parent and a child who once, in fact, shared the same spoon could eventually get to a point where they cringed at the idea of even seeing each other. How could that happen? Or how was it that these couples I was marrying would sit there in my premarital counseling office, cuddling up together on the couch, so eloquent in their capacity to describe all that they cherished and adored about each other, how was it that over time they got to the point that their hearts became so hardened towards each other, hateful towards each other? How did this happen? How, I wonder, did these friendships or these work relationships that once seemed destined to soar to the blue skies as the two individuals involved dreamed of all they could accomplish together, how is it that those same remarkable relationships seem to crash and burn, divide in such hateful ways? How, how did this happen? How does this happen? I've come to see over time that the answer to this question is complicated. As we explored over these past couple of weeks together, part of the reason is because many people lack a personal vision a guiding vision, or a personal experience that would motivate them towards that vision of a love that is different from the manner of relationship that is commonplace in our day. Some of it has to do with human selfishness, unable to accept and appreciate the differences, the invariable differences that are there between people. We begin to drift away from them, separate from them. Build up hardness of heart towards them. More and more, I have come to believe, however, that a great part, one of the major reasons why the kite of our connections so often fails to reach the heights of the remarkable and plummets instead into the regular or worse, one of the major reasons is because we do not know how to communicate with one another without killing each other. We do not know how to communicate with one another. The string of ourselves has gotten so tightly wound and knotted up in these patterns of speaking or failing to speak to each other that we hurt each other in ways that are simply childish, as Paul puts it. This is, of course, what we hear the Apostle James agonizing about in his famous third chapter of 
his letter to the church at Jerusalem. The tongue, James writes, is a very small part of the body. But it exerts an influence so disproportionately large compared to its size. Words, he writes, are like a bit in the mouth of a stallion, able to turn that huge beast on its pathway. Words are like a rudder, able to alter the direction of a huge ship. Words are like a spark, capable of igniting a phenomenal fire. Like these other small things, human speech is wonderful in its powerfulness, its It's able to do such extraordinary things when managed by someone who is wise. But used unwisely, our words can leave people trampled or galloping away like that stallion. Used unwisely, our tongue can run the ship of our relationship onto the rocks. Used unwisely, our words can ignite a blaze of rage or of hurt in somebody else that will not be easy to put out. And this is why James writes, not many of you should presume to be teachers. A statement I remember often before I step up into this pulpit. Not many of you should presume to be teachers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, I don't think James is trying to scare you out of being a Sunday school teacher, not to trying to dissuade you from a career in teaching in our schools. What James is saying, however, is that given the power of words, we must be both careful and wise before we presume to instruct other people in the error of their ways. And the older we get, the more wise we feel to instruct other people in the error of their ways. Jesus himself said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word that you utter. Every word offered carelessly or without care, you must give an account for this. Because of the power of these words is the implication. What both of these authorities, James and Jesus himself, are underlining here is that what we say and how we say it will come back. It will come back to us for good or for ill. No one beyond the Bible, I think, has understood this more clearly than a man named John Gottman. If there was a hall of fame for relationship experts, John Gottman would have a wing to himself. Gottman is a legend in counseling circles, some of you know, because in as little as five minutes of interviewing a couple, he can predict with 91% accuracy whether that relationship will soar or crash. Give him more than five minutes, his accuracy goes up. Gottman has found that some 80% of those couples in marriages that eventually divorce say that their marriages collapsed because they gradually grew apart and lost a sense of closeness, love, and respect. They grew apart and lost a sense of closeness, love, 
and respect. And the same kind of thing happens in other kinds of relationships beyond marriage. Work relationships, friendships, sibling relationships, extended family relationships. It's the same growing apart and the loss of closeness, love, and respect. But what has obsessed John Gottman is figuring out why. Why does this happen? And Gottman has spent decades drilling into the dynamics of human relationships, trying to discern what happens between people who love each other so much that causes them to drift and to decline in the relationship. And what he ultimately identified were four particular ways of using words at the heart of the problem. Four particular ways of using words that function like these heavy weights on the kite string of an interpersonal connection. And so for the sake of all of those people out there that you know who have got relationship issues, would you like to know what those four ways are? So you can instruct them? The first damaging way with words that Gottman identified was criticism. Criticism. Now let us face it. Every significant relationship, all the ones that matter, sooner or later, have to get around to conversations about performance. I'm going to be honest about it. In the early stages, it doesn't matter. Nobody's paying much attention to that. We're all uh, intoxicated by the novelty of it all. But if we're going to stay together, if we're going to build a life together, sooner or later, we have got to pay attention to issues of performance. What you're doing, what I'm doing, what we agree to be doing, and how we're doing with those agreements. And so over time, conversations like this unfold. Gosh, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that you didn't get that report out. I'm actually really frustrated that you didn't take the recycling out because I I thought we had agreed that that's what you were going to do for us. That's communicating an honest complaint, right? That's an honest complaint. The speaker is sharing an earnest emotion and explains why the emotion's there. The other person has a chance to correct the issue because they know what it would look like to correct it, or the opportunity to engage in further dialogue about what the issue really is or what mitigating circumstances there might be in this circumstance. Relationships need complaints. Every relationship has to have a complaint department, right? a place in our heart where we make room for those complaints so that we can understand better what the expectations and hopes of the other is and either adjust those expectations or our own. Here, however, is how the conversation often goes instead of the way I've just described. I can't believe you didn't do that. I mean, for somebody who always says how productive you are, what a great contributor you are, you sure are Mr. Unreliable. 
you are misundependable far too often. I mean, how selfish do you have to be? You feel the difference between those two approaches in conversation? You feel what happens to your spirit when somebody engages in a hyperbolic accusation? You always, you never. Or when they engage in name-calling, lazy, stupid, selfish, or in character attack, I can't believe you are like this. That's criticism. Different than complaint. The second weight that people often lay on a relationship, found Gottman, are words of contempt. In fact, he found that contempt almost always, over time, follows criticism. And then leads to more of it. There's the coworker who says, oh, you really think you're God's gift to this company, don't you? Why, if the people upstairs, those idiots upstairs, knew what you were doing or failing to do, they would can you so fast. Or there's the family member who says to the other, I am so sick and tired of putting up with your excuses. Are you hoping for a TV-watching medal or what? You hear what's underneath this? Contempt gets expressed through sneering. It gets expressed through sarcasm or hostile humor. It's even heavier than criticism because underlying This contempt is a fundamental disrespect. We're no longer surprised that this person has done this. We expected it because we don't have any respect for them anymore. People will sometimes offer excuses for speaking contemptuously to each other. Oh, hey, I know I stepped a little out of line, but hey, I'm Italian. Or I'm, I'm a New Yorker. It's just my personality. Or, you know, I didn't really mean that when I said it to you. But other people, no matter what comes out of our mouth after we've shown contempt, other people know. They know the truth. We disdain them. We disdain them. And the weight of that contempt... The weight of that kind of contempt is so profound on the kite string of a relationship. And then there's the third weight. It's called defensiveness. Defensiveness. Doug McKinley, to whom I owe, I think, some of the best insights in the series of reflections, reminds us in his book, Mad About You, that many of us live by the sports adage that the best offense is a good defense. Many of us are all pro players when it comes to defensiveness. Instead of opening ourselves up to really considering what the other person is trying to bring to our attention, 
Instead of really opening up ourselves up to look at the merits of somebody else's concern, we go on a defensive attack. Right? We actually play defense by going on the offense. He, McKinley recounts this conversation between a wife and a husband. The wife says, It bothers me that you look at pornography. And her husband responds, What? You think I'm some kind of a pervert, don't you? And she counters, I'm just telling you, it makes me uncomfortable. He replies, Look, I'm not having affairs with these women. They mean nothing to me. You must be feeling insecure now that you've put on a little bit of weight. She says, I just wish you wouldn't look at them anymore. And he leaves the room saying, I can't believe you think I'm a pervert. Now that is a colorful example. But when defensiveness like this gets hung on the line of a relationship, and let me tell you, I have suited up and played that game myself. When defensiveness gets hung on the line of the relationship, a pair of people lose their ability to resolve their differences. They lose it. The defensive person is no longer amenable to receiving the input needed. The defensive person is more concerned now with preserving his or her image of themselves, with justifying themselves in the face of whatever other harms or hurts they may have experienced in the relationship, than with dealing honestly with the heart and the hurt of that other person at that moment. And so they deal with their insecurity. And they often know, at least I often know when concerns are raised to me, there's truth in this. There's a grain of truth, at least a grain of truth in what this person is saying. But we deal with our insecurity over this by denying and diverting and going on the attack. And the other person soon figures that out and stops raising the very issues that so need to be dealt with. Not just to keep the kite of the relationship from crashing, but because the very reason God actually brought them together in relationship was to help reshape one another in needful ways through speaking the truth and receiving the truth. When criticism, contempt, and defensiveness get grooved in a relationship, it will invariably lead to the fourth of the, of the weights being added to the kite string. John Gottman calls this one stonewalling. Stonewalling. And most of us, I think, have lived this or we've seen this more than we want to admit. Picture for just a second a scenario with me. You've got a mom who's been trying to address her adolescent daughter's issues. The adolescent daughter is getting bad grades. She's getting very sloppy. Her manners are bad. Or These are the concerns the mom has. And the mother has been using 
criticism and contempt as a way of going after those particular issues uh, for a long time. So the daughter, Sally, walks through the door at the end of a school day, or maybe after an afternoon event, and mom sets in on her, right? Just goes right after these concerns all over again. Sally mounts this kind of shaky defense, the whole defensiveness thing, but she then leaves the room in a huff, and soon Sally starts coming home later and later and later. And when she's in the house, she avoids every conversation if she possibly can. She plugs in the earbuds. She just avoids the connection if at all possible. So what is mom's response? What's mom's response? You know what it is. She goes after her harder, right? Flight leads to pursuit. And so she's after her. And, and, and the avoidance pattern drives mom insane. We're not dealing with the issues mom feels. So she yells and she slams door, doors and she, and she picks up the cat and hurls her at the daughter. You know, I don't know. Not happened in my house, but we, cause, only because we have dogs and they're too heavy. So Sally, Sally is really, you know, being bad at struggling with this. And finally, mom grounds Sally and Sally whirls around on her mother And she glares silently at her as if to say, you are not even worth wasting breath on. And she leaves the room. She buries herself in her books, her texts. She settles on the silent treatment. She tells herself as things settle out, that she's not really punishing her mom because that would be lowering herself to mom's level. She's just avoiding the hassle. This kind of stonewalling goes on between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between siblings, between work partners, It just goes on all over the place. And this must be familiar to you. I mean, isn't some of what I'm describing familiar to you? This way of interacting gets played out in our public life. You know, it goes on between the people on the left and the people on the right. It gets played out in the grand scale between different races and religions and cultures. All of us, writes James, all of us, I mean, no exceptions, stumble in many ways in this whole sphere of life. That's what James says. In fact, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man able to keep his whole body in check. Are any of us perfect? Maybe you haven't thought a lot about the way you speak. Or maybe you have, I don't know. But most of us, I think, don't dwell a whole lot on our heavy way with words, though we're conscious of others' ways. Especially, I think, we don't think a lot about it because, well, a lot of other people speak the same way. Sure, we recognize we lose it every now and then. I mean, there, every one of us gets to a point where we go, oh, I just got, went over the line there. But we're so much more aware of all the nice things that we're saying and the encouragement we're giving and 
We come to our churches and we speak and sing such wonderful things about God and we've got on our lips all of these great virtues and values and politics and hopes. But this is odd. This is odd. This thing that goes on in our circles. And James points this out, this oddness. He says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. With our tongue we praise our Lord and our Father and with it we curse others. We crush others who have been made in the likeness of this God we've praised. Out of the same mouth, says James, come praise and cursing. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, he underlines, this shouldn't be. This shouldn't be. This shouldn't be because it represents a contradiction between our stated interest in loving God and our actual practice in loving the people God loves. This shouldn't be. This should not be because we can't develop the remarkable relationships that we want until we focus on these regular practices that keep us from them. You see, there's this tricky thing about a horse's bit or a ship's rudder or a small spark. Their effect is not always obvious in a single moment. Right? That's why we don't take them that seriously. We don't see the full effect in the single exchange. But these small, small turns, these small engagements, they change the course of things a ship, a, a forest, a, a horse, they change the course of these things by small degrees. And so we start out flying high. We hope to go higher in our relationships. All of us start there. They, we all start wanting to know you, to learn from you, to work with you, to marry you, to parent you, to neighbor you, to love you, whatever. All of us, that's our dream at the beginning. Always. And then, little by little, through our careless way with words, our relationships wind up where we never wanted them to be. And I now, having lived with this in my own life and experienced it in others' lives, I'm no longer mystified by how this happens. What I'm not now curious about, however, is how things get better. Because that's what God is, God is in the business of. Taking broken things and renewing them, right? Redeeming them, changing them, transforming them. I'm interested to know in how this pattern gets better. I'm curious about how the regular way of communication that we get slotted into, grooved into, gets replaced by a more remarkable way of communication. Aren't you curious about that? Aren't you? How, how do we learn to speak more wisely? What would that look like to, to live that out in practice? And there too, I think we find tremendous help in the word of God himself. We find grace and truth for us in the word of God himself, and that is what we're going to be returning to discover afresh together when we gather next week.
because we're out of time today. So would you join me in prayer? Let's bow our heads. Lord, as no one else does, you know. You know us. You know the reality of our relationships. You know the part that we play in them and that others play. We cannot control others. So we ask your forgiveness. And we ask the forgiveness of those we've injured knowingly and unknowingly by our careless way with words. You have called us to use words, and we do not run away from that. But you have said that in your word, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And so as we go forth today from this place, seeking to live more like Jesus, help us to find our way into this your way. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.